she make it woolly? Young girls that do get woolly Cause of all the stress Yeah When they get woolly Try a little tenderness Yeah Stop it Thank you What? It's not woolly Nobody gets woolly. Women get weary. They don't get woolly. Nobody's got stress. They're wearing a dress. God damn, I hate people to get the words wrong. That, of course, is from Bull Durham, uh, Kevin Costner and Tim Robbins. Uh, and this is that's sort of what this show is about. It's about people who get the words wrong. Um, and and I, I think, you know, obviously Kevin Costner plays a very irritable Crash Davis in that scene. But mostly, I think it's fun when people get the words wrong. Uh, as long as they're not like president or something, <laughs> maybe that gets a little worrisome or, or wearisome. Um, but today, we're going to talk about uh, malaprops, mondegreens, and a whole bunch of other things, spoonerisms, eggcorns, which I just found out about like 24 hours ago. Um, and to get things started here, uh, we're joined by Emily Brewster, senior editor and lexicographer at Merriam-Webster and the host of the Word Matters podcast. Emily Brewster, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, it occurred to me, since I'm talking to somebody from Merriam-Webster, that, you know, part of this is, you know, if you're going to have any kind of orthodoxy and that orthodoxy will be overseen by, say, dictionary companies, that means you're also going to create a whole terrain, a whole landscape of unorthodoxies. And, and that's kind of what we're talking about today, right? But not necessarily, we're not going to be casting asparagus on them. We are, uh, <laughs> in a way, I think they are to be celebrated. Maybe you can give me your thoughts, though. Oh, sure. Celebrated, certainly. It's it's interesting to me, though, the, the, these errors that actually do become established in the language, because they're kind of two categories, some that, that just live on in spoken word and people kind of snicker about them. And then there are others that actually end up taking hold in the language itself and eventually getting entered in dictionaries. Give us an example of that. Oh, um, buck naked was um is the older form of the phrase used to describe someone who has no clothes on um but butt naked uh eventually also took hold and we had enough evidence of it in use and published edited text that we now enter both buck naked and butt naked that uh, first of all I, I was i was only aware of buck naked so i need to catch up i'm catching up <laughs> to do here um and you know one of the other things that we're going to be talking about today is uh the mondegreen uh, and this is um, a misheard lyric uh, that sometimes... Well, you have your own example. Uh, tell me about your relationship with Jimi Hendrix. Oh, yes. Sixth grade, art class, we were doing calligraphy. And I was very proud of my calligraphy, and so was my friend. And he proposed that we do a challenge. And so he, um, his challenge was that we would both write in our very best calligraphy the phrase, excuse me while I kiss the sky. So I... I think I only really knew Karen Carpenter at the time, did not know Jimi Hendrix. I wrote out in my best calligraphy, excuse me while I kiss this guy. And that was not what my friend had written. My friend had written, excuse me while I kiss the sky. Right. Classic, classic example yeah. of a mondegreen. And, that's, and, uh, yeah. and the, you know, the, the, the outcome of that contest was just lost in the hilarity that ensued from <laughs> me writing this. Right. And I, I that's got to be one of the top 10 mondegreens. Uh, I mean, a lot of people do that. So you should forgive yourself. Yeah. I we were preparing to do a show about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. It was a show in front of a live audience. 
Um, and I've loved the Beach Boys for 35, 45 years, something like that, uh, maybe more. Uh, and so um, I've, I, I, as I was getting things ready, we were going to have the audience sing along. So I was printing up some of the lyrics. And uh, I was lo- looking online for the lyrics to California Girls. And um, I'm looking at a lyric and I'm, I thought, well, this is wrong. Because it's, I dig a French bikini on the wild Isle of Dogs. Why don't they see the wild Isle of Dogs? Because, and for 35, 45 years, I, I thought there was a place called the wild Isle of Dogs, probably pretty close to Catalina Island or something. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> this is incorrect. It's, I dig a French bikini on a Hawaiian island doll, uh, or, or, or <laughs> which is actually dumber than my version. Um, and, but I thought, well, this is wrong. This is non-canonical. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, I've been singing the song wrong for 35, 45 years. But I, you know, well, you were applying a logic, which yeah. is really key to the idea of what a mondegreen is, right? That there is there is this sense of you, you hear something that um, your 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 ear just tries to tries to form meaning out of something that that is that it's not hearing clearly. Right, and I think a lot of us do the thing that you you described earlier, where the language starts to absorb butt naked. Or I think another example that you had for us was the word uh, apron or the phrase "an apron" is actually a corruption of an older correct phrase, right? That's right. That's right. the The original, the older term is a napron, and the "n" on the on the end of the of the article "an." Um, or yeah, the n on the n at the beginning yeah. of the word napron got understood as being an n on the end of the article an. Right. So it's like my friend Teddy is went out the other day and bought a Naudi. Um, so um, pretty soon they're going to be Naudis. <laughs> um, but I think what happens also is we do that too, right? We heard, for example, from somebody who uh, who encountered, I think, in a, a term paper or something, the phrase something about the economy being in a downward sparrow. Um, and, oh. and, and now says their entire family just says that all the time. Uh, and and I, I, by the way, I'm going to start saying that too. But yeah, you, I like that. I like that very much. <laughs> yeah. and, but you incorporate it into your family talk, right? I mean, families have their own languages. That's right. That's right. There's an idiolect that a person, a family, a group develops. And sometimes those things just spread because we, you know, we are, we are social animals. We communicate with one another and the, and whether or not something like downward sparrow is adopted because, you know, consciously because they because we think it's funny or charming is kind of beside the point. If it functions in a certain way in the language and in the conversation, then it, it, it eventually becomes established and whatever, you know, whatever winking there was about it can be lost over generations. Right. I actually used to work with a woman named Sue Hertz who had been at her high school in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. I don't know why I know that. Uh, had been doing a very, very famous Shakespeare play. And the um, one of the uh, actresses on stage uh, made a goof and said, oh, happy daggy. Um, and, <laughs> and so, oh, oh, happy. Sue, Sue often at the end of a very exhausting day would just sigh and go. Oh, happy daggy. Uh, and we all kind of started to pick that up there, too. We should say that we use the phrase mondegreens. Um, and uh, so warning, trigger warning here, we're going to play Scottish music. Um, and I just want to say they're doing this. Be nice. OK, they're doing the best they can. They're Scottish. Uh, so we're going to uh, play uh, the uh, an old, old ballad called the Bonnie Earl Amore. Uh, this is a one gap.
So you, you hear the word there. It's laid him on the green. That's the phrase. And somebody mondegreened that, right? And and turned it into Lady Mondegreen? Yes. The journalist Sylvia Wright, uh, she was writing a column in the 1950s, I think it was 1954. And she recounted hearing this song and thinking that it was slain the ear Earl O'More and Lady Mondegreen instead of laid him on the green. In the audio clip that you played, the enunciation is very clear. Yes, yes. But I think that uh, Sylvia Wright was hearing a version that was a, a little bit more um, gently sung, perhaps. Right. The song is usually sung while drunk. Uh, yeah. yes, uh, <laughs> that helps yes. if you're going uh, to form Mondegreens. Mary Strachan, who sings it there, she just happened to be sober. Um, so, yeah. And all of these things kind of arise from interesting places. I mean, malapropism. Uh, which is you know the use of the wrong word uh, also arrives uh, arises from a British Isles source uh, um, several hundred years ago. You want to tell us about? I think most people know this, but in case they don't, Emily, uh, tell them about it. Sure. R.B. Sheridan's uh, play *The Rivals* was published in 1775, and it featured a character named Mrs. Malaprop. And she would say things like, you know, something is the very pineapple of success, meaning the pinnacle of success. It was a way of, uh, of kind of mal- malapropisms can highlight, um, especially has someone who projects a sense of confidence and competence with the language really has no grasp on finer points of vocabulary. They're often, you know, kind of fancy elevated words that this person just really does not quite know in the way that they think that they do. Yeah, Shakespeare does this a lot too, often with his rude mechanicals or uh, Dogberry in, in Much Ado About Nothing says, our watch, my lord, have indeed comprehended two auspicious persons and we would have them this morning examined before your worship. So he says comprehended instead of apprehended. He says auspicious instead of suspicious. Um, and Shakespeare is, once again, kind of playing around in the same way. I want to say that this tradition didn't die out. Uh, it probably will never die out. But when I was growing up, there was a comedian named Norm Crosby, whose act was basically just this. Uh, let's hear a two-cat. This is a little bit of Norm Crosby on the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. Thank you very much. I want to tell you something. I, I, can't, I can't prescribe to you how I look forward <laughs> to coming back here to the Good Time Hour. This is such a wholesome show. It really is. You feel that aura of reek around here. <laughs> the whole image is, is so prenatal. It's so stipulated. Don't you feel it? It's an American show. It's, 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 it's honest. It has conception and perversity. It really is. So, Emily Brewster, this is, you know, this is fun, right? I mean, you're, you're, it's dumb, but you're also laughing because, what, we're playing with words, which we like to do. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's it's really playing in this, you know, it's it's a it's exposing a weakness in someone's vocabulary in a way that makes us all laugh. I think, you know, in part because we're in on the joke that they don't actually seem to be in on. Right. Norm is very good at that. So yeah. <laughs> um, we're, we're going to run through a whole uh, kind of taxonomy of these. We've already done a bunch. Uh, there's also the um, something called the egg corn, which I, I have to be honest, I had not heard of egg corns until we started on this journey for this episode. Tell us about this. This is the newest of the terms for, for kind of slips of the tongue. 
Um, an egg corn, it was term was coined in 2003 by a linguist named Jeffrey Pullum. And it is, it's really the misunderstanding of a word's form by a kind of bad logic being applied. So it's similar to a mondegreen in that it's like a, you know, a mishearing, misunderstanding, but it is, um, it's not of something that is sung or recited. It's just a, it's just a, a word out there in the, in the world. So for example, um, that it itself is an egg corn. Um, someone you know, misunderstood the word acorn, the, the seed from which an oak tree grows as an egg corn right? Kind of makes sense logically that um, that an oak tree would grow from, from an egg corn. And uh, that is where the word egg corn comes from. So we other examples are things like um, you're going to nip it in the butt instead of nip it in the bud. Um, I didn't mean to keep up, keep bringing up butt words, but sorry no, about that. We like There's that. Also... You just ensured that you'll be rebooked here. So you're, you're fine. <laughs> keep going. Right. Keep saying butt. <laughs> One I noticed on Twitter a bunch of years ago was day hyphen today mm. instead of day hyphen to hyphen day. So, you know, day to day operations, meaning from one day to another day, but day to day operations, it somehow suggests that the, it puts the emphasis on the, on the, the current day, you know, like right. day to day operations. I, I think this might be an example of the money. It's another one that I've kind of incorporated into my own speech at my peril, but we used to have a mayor many, many years ago in Hartford, Mayor DeLuca, uh, and he had a whole bunch of these, but one of them was he would announce that he was going to go through something with a fine tooth and a comb. Um, <laughs> and and I love that so much that that's the way I say that now. I don't ever use fine tooth comb accurately. And I'm sure there are people listening to me who go, what an idiot. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know the idiom. Uh, but yeah, sometimes we just, it's just as good, really. I love that because what is a fine tooth? Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. Um, yeah, another one that I really like, it challenges, you know, the idea of eggcorns is that they have to have some kind of logical basis, but the logic is almost always really skewed. So, for example, like um, people say instead of a dog eat dog world, mm -hmm. one that's vicious where people are fighting each other for the position of power, um, people talk about a doggy dog world, right. which sounds so much friendlier than a dog eat dog world. <laughs> it's just, oh, we're living in this doggy dog world. Yeah, I, no, I've seen that one too. Um, so now we have to segue from eggcorns to spoonerisms. This also comes from uh, somewhat from sort of British, not antiquity, but a few few hundred years back. And I think it's named after an Oxford Don who did these things a lot. Explain what a spoonerism is. A spoonerism is the transposition of usually the initial sound of two or more words. So a classic example is tons of soil for sons of toil. And William Archibald Spooner, uh, he was a clergyman and an educator, and he was often in positions where he would be speaking to, you know, large groups of people. And, and he just did these, these transpositions naturally, unintentionally, um, and, and uh, he came to be known for them. Um, and he still went on. This is the thing that I really marvel at is that he, he continued to have a life of public speaking, despite things like, I have to give you my favorite anecdote. He had Queen Victoria in his audience somehow. And uh, he, he said, I have in my bosom a half warmed fish. What he really meant was that he had a half formed wish. <laughs> All right. Well, actually, the British are really good at these. Um, the two Ronnies uh, were kind of famous for doing skits that involved them. Uh, Kat, we're going to play a little bit of A3 here. Good morning, William. Good day, Rosie. I mean, good day, Rosie. Mm. 
<laughs> you were up early, dear. Where have you been? Oh, I've been rolling in the strose bushes. Uh, strolling in the rose bushes. <laughs> they love so smelly this morning. You do adore your garden, don't you? Oh, indeed I did. I mean, indeed I did. <laughs> yes, there's nothing makes me gappier than a spot of hardening. Did I fear? <laughs> I fear there's so much to do at this time of year, I'm neglecting it. It's the rutting season for tea cozies, you know. <laughs> season for tea cozies. No, 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 the cutting season for tea roses, dear. <laughs> I declare you're getting as mad as me. <laughs> so, you know, Emily Brewster, we're, we're reluctantly going to have to wrap up this segment here, but I, I think, you know, one thing that we've been saying again and again here is this is sort of where we go to play, right? I mean, there are situations in life where we want English or any language to be spoken more or less canonically and orthodoxly, orthodoxically. Now I'm doing it myself. So, um, but but to go have fun, you know, this is sort of where you go to have fun and you realize some of the other possibilities in language. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's it's such a, um, you know, it's something that, that's accessible to everyone, right? Everyone who speaks the language has this this uh, this access to this kind of this kind of play. All right, we're going to have to stop there, uh, and we're going to, in the next segment, talk a little bit uh, about what's going on in our minds when we make these mistakes, when we absorb these uh, these, <laughs> these sometimes fortunate errors. Uh, but we've been talking to Emily Brewster, senior editor and lexicographer at Merriam-Webster, host of the Word Matters podcast. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, that song, Bearsy Dotes, uh, goes back decades uh, and is sometimes cited as an example of a reverse Mondegreen. In other words, it's written in a garbled version of the idea of mares eat oats and goats eat oats and little lambs eat ivy. Uh, all those things are kind of run together. The S's are turned into Z's. And so it sounds 
like gibberish until you think about it. Um, and it's, I don't know, there's a, a huge brain exercise probably going on there as we're decoding it. Fortunately, we have with us right now the exact right person to talk about that. Uh, Melissa Baysburg is a uh, professor of language, teaching studies, and linguistics at the University of Oregon, where she's also director of the Speech Perception and Production Lab. Welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much. You know, it occurred to me, even just doing the, the previous segment of the show, that not just with songs, we can get to songs, but with speech, we're kind of listening to the music of speech. And so when there's an error, if somebody says, oh, well, I'm in a downward sparrow, uh, we, we, we know what that means. And particularly if they say it in the right cadence and pitch and phrasing and voicing, right? We're sort of listening and hearing uh, what we need to hear there. But maybe you could say more about that. Yeah. So when we're listening to speech, we have a really hard job ahead of us usually because um, speech doesn't take place in a vacuum, right? It occurs usually in a sort of noisy situation, right? So that noise might be if you're in a crowded restaurant and you're trying to talk to somebody, or if you're walking down the street and a garbage truck is coming by you. Um, those are cases where it's really hard to understand the speech around you. But, you know, even people listening to us right now, are probably not doing this totally in isolation in a totally silent environment. You might be in an office where somebody's shuffling papers next to you, or you might be in a car and you're having some road noise. And so we're not in a perfect situation where you're just getting the speech signal in your ear. What you're getting instead is the speech signal plus everything else around you in your environment. So, and so our brains yeah. have this task to kind of figure out, first of all, how to separate the speech signal from the rest of the noise, because it all comes into your ear as one sort of piece of sound, um, but then to try to unpack what was actually being said. And fortunately, as humans, we are really, really good at this, in part because we have lots of information at our disposal, including, as you said, the sort of melody or music of speech, um, which helps us predict what should be coming up in the future. So if you hear something and you kind of miss a piece of it, um, but you know that piece should be about one syllable long, you're likely to fill that in with a, a one syllable word instead of with a four, four syllable word, for example. Right. Uh, you know, I'm 68 years old and almost everybody of my generation and my age started to hear worse. And we mm -hmm. hear especially worse often in crowded situations. Um, yep. And I think what we do, though, with the the compensation is I've heard 68 years of speech uh, and exactly. a lot a lot of times I can kind of, kind of suss out what it is I must have probably just heard even though I didn't hear it. Yeah, and you know, you see um that in general Adults are really, really good at this. Adults, especially um, listening in their primary language, are really, really good at this. And you see things sort of start to fall apart in these interesting ways that we you talked about in the previous segment in a bunch of um, interesting scenarios. So one is, as you said, music, right? Um, and why music is different than than kind of spoken speech is really interesting. But you also see the same sorts of things falling apart for individuals who are listening in a language where they're less sort of competent, um, right? So a, a language they learned later in adulthood, or you see um, little kids make these sorts of mistakes a lot, right? When they're hearing speech. Um, and that's probably because they have sort of uh, less practice relying on their, you know, they don't have 68 years of speech. They might only have six years of listening to speech. And so they have a little bit less to sort of fall back on when things get hairy in terms of um, 
the amount of information they're able to get from the signal itself. Right. I think of the world according to Garp, where there's a little boy who uh, hears about the undertow and he thinks it's undertowed and that there's some yes. kind of toad under the water who's, who's going to get him, um, yeah. which is a not unreasonable conclusion. And no. that, that once again becomes a family word. They all start exactly. saying it that way. So, yes. So we talk about music uh, and it gets even more complicated. There's a lot of things competing now for the real estate on our eardrums. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I'm going to play a commercial. This is a commercial for Volkswagen Passat that kind of took advantage of this. I think the point of this commercial, I don't always know, uh, is that the sound system in Passat uh, is maybe a lot clearer. This is B1, Cap. I'm burning out this useless telephone. My hair is gone. All alone. Burning up the room with cheap cologne. The musty motor home. I'm the rocket man. Rocket man. Burning, burning out his fuse up here alone. Burning out his fuse up here alone. I told you it wasn't provolone. <laughs> Crystal clear Fender premium audio. One of many premium features available on the all new Volkswagen Passat. Okay, first of all, Melissa, I had no idea what that lyric was. <laughs> yeah, me either. I was like, oh, that's fascinating. And, and I think it's partly because um, some of this is, is due to, I mean, uh, you're the expert. I want to hear what you have to say. But my theory has always been, you know, the production can be a problem. Um, the, the timber of the voice can be a problem. And Elton John is a little tiny bit marble-mouthed anyway. There's a reason that he's got this and Hold Me Closer Tony Dancer, uh, Tony Danza as, as Mondegreens, because he's hard to hear sometimes, right? I mean, it, it, all, all music is not created equal. Yeah, so I think that's probably true that all music isn't created equal, but it's also the case that in general, music takes up some of the cues that we are able to use to predict in speech naturally and uses it for other things, right? So it uses it for the melody and for the rhythm of the music and takes that melodic and rhythmic information sort of away from the speech signal. So instead of... Um, being able to rely on that to help us figure out, you know, what words are most likely, we're left instead with just the sort of um, the sounds of the words themselves and our knowledge about language. And especially in musical lyrics, I mean, I think your your Beach Boys example in the previous segment is a great example of this. Um, you know, when it's something that seems really infrequent or unlikely, you're you're not going to fill in with that. You're going to fill in with something that feels a little bit more common to you. So like dogs is a probably more frequent word in your vocabulary than dolls, right? Um, and so that makes sense to fill that word in instead. And so we're using, you know, our brains are, are really good at using the information that they have. And it's using the sort of most logical information to fill in the gaps of what, what it misunderstands. And, you know, music in general has a lot of, um, a lot of things that are, um, infrequent in terms of turns of phrase. And this is in part because people are being creative and using language in sort of fun and playful ways when they're writing song lyrics. But I think that can then lead to, to misunderstandings. Right. Uh, I can give you another Beach Boys example. Um, the song Help Me Rhonda begins, since she put me down, I've been out doing in my head. Doing in my head is a non-canonical, non-idiomatic expression to the best of my knowledge. I've never heard it in any other context. Um, right. So that's one of the reasons that Max, one of our social media friends, thought for a long time that the person was complaining that there were owls puking in his bed. There have been yeah. owls puking in my bed. It's, it makes as much, I mean, and that's a problem, right? In writing a lyric, you're often, in order to get the meter and the rhyme right, 
you're having to twist things around a little bit uh, outside their normal idiomatic usage. Exactly. Yeah. So you're having to you're in addition to wanting to be creative in terms of the the kind of words and way in which you learn use language, you're restricted in lots of ways by the actual meter and melody that you're playing with as a songwriter. And so, you know, this is one reason why I'm not a, a songwriter is because that sort of combination of creativity plus restriction creates a really interesting sort of logic puzzle that I think is really tricky to solve in a way that then your listener gets what you're trying to say. Although I would still maintain there are differences. I mean, this I don't think this problem would have been quite as persistent and quite as widespread as it appears to be pre-rock and roll. Uh, and, and part of the reason is, I think, you know, you look back to the American Songbook. I mean, I'll give you one of the great rhymes in the history of the American Songbook is by Dorothy Fields uh, in I Won't Dance. You know, she says, uh, uh, plus this feeling isn't purely mental, but heaven rest us, I'm not asbestos. Um, <laughs> now, that's a tricky rhyme. Heaven rest us, I don't think was ever idiomatic. It's just close to being idiomatic. But I've right. also never, I've heard dozens of versions of that song. I've never had any trouble hearing it because in that era, songs were performed in a way that emphasized the lyrics more. I mean, Ira Gershwin, Cole Porter, Dorothy Fields, these are people using complicated word patterns, but people wanted to be able to hear them too. I'm not sure there's quite such, I'm asking you to make a rock critic judgment rather than what <laughs> remain to your field, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I think that there is, um, the insight here for me is that, you know, the production and in addition to the production, this sort of other competing elements in the sound signal can be really um, distracting in the sense that they draw your attention away from the lyrics, right? So the more instruments you might have, the more kind of competing patterns among instruments, that might make it more complicated to understand these lyrics. And then there's also the sort of performance practices of, you know, uh, jazz music requires, uh, or, you know, the music of the American songbook, as you said, requires a sort of different type of enunciation than a typical rock or pop singer would require. And that's that's the sort of aesthetic of those two musical genres from my perspective, although I, I should say I'm not a rock music expert uh, <laughs> at all. <laughs> but you play one on television. Um, oh, exactly. All right. So, um, and Kat, uh, I'm going to, in a second, call for A4, which I, I sort of, we had, we had a different use for. What, one thing I think also that affects both the generator of words and the absorber of words is emotional state. You know, mm -hmm. the, like if we're calm, I'm guessing uh, we're going to speak a little bit more clearly and we're going to understand a little bit more clearly. Uh, the uh, series Succession is back right now. There's a character in Succession, one of the family members known as Cousin Greg, who has a real problem with this. And, and when he's very, very nervous, it gets worse. He had to testify um, uh, in season two before Congress. And this is what that sounded like, A4. Gregory Hirsch, executive assistant to Tom Wamsgans, correct? Yes. <clears throat> yes, if, if it is to be said. I'm sorry? Uh, if it is to be said, so it, be, so it is. Are, are you all right? Uh, yes. Uh, I merely wish to answer in the affirmative fashion. You can speak to us normally. Okay. No, thank you, sir. Uh, uh, so I shall. 
So, Melissa, that's a, I, I mean, I think that's real, and, and it's probably, you would know best, works both ways, too. Probably if you're in some kind of heightened emotional state trying to understand somebody saying something to you that might be important, it, it, it may become harder. Yeah, yeah, I love that clip because it's uh, such a good example of the sort of thing that people do. So when we're working on language normally, it kind of flows, right? You don't usually have to think about every single word that you're trying to say, but as soon as you start to be careful about the language that you're using, it's sort of like the whole system freaks out and has to pause a little bit. And you can think about this in terms of anything that you do really naturally. If you're a person who runs, for example, running is really a natural sort of um, mechanical process. But if you start to think about what's going into each step as you're running, that process gets kind of jumbled, right? And so the same thing happens when you're trying to speak in a in a fancy or formal way. Um, and the same thing is true when you're listening in a really heightened state. Our brains are not great at multitasking <laughs> in general. Um, and I think this is true when you're trying to listen and process emotions. I think people um, talk about this a lot in the kind of medical communication setting, where a doctor is trying to explain something to you and perhaps they've delivered either really good or really bad news, or you know, perhaps in some kind of uh, high-pressure job situation, you see a similar sort of thing. And after the conversation happens, the person reports not being able to remember anything that that the other person said, right? And there's nothing wrong with that person's ears. There's nothing that changed in terms of their ability to actually hear the signal that's presented to them. But somehow your brain was busy doing other things and had a more difficult time doing the the more, um, not necessarily automatic, but certainly easier process of speech perception because it was otherwise occupied. Yeah, this is why often we have somebody else come with us to medical appointments. Exactly. Um, because for us, it does start to sound like that trumpet noise in the Charlie Brown cartoons mm -hmm. when the teacher's speaking. You're going, oh, I can hear some noise right now, but it's not it's not really registering. Uh, uh, Melissa Baysburg, a professor of language teaching studies and linguistics at the University of Oregon, where uh, you are also director of the Speech Perception and Production Lab. Thank you so much for giving some time to us. Thanks so much. And uh, we're going to coming up. We're going to talk about a couple of different things with our friend Ben Zimmer, including, of course, the goat, the greatest of all time at this stuff, at least allegedly, Yogi Berra. of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. 
When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash pepen. Okay, we're back. It's time for me to say that the technical traducer of today's show is Pat Castor. Uh, and our, this is hard to do, actually, our senior traducer uh, is Tilly Lyson, uh, and she is the producer of this episode as well. All right, I'm not doing any more of those. Uh, it's too hard. <laughs> but um, I also want to quickly say Jonathan McNichol, as usually, as usual, he, he would be hard to spoonerize anyway. Jonathan McNichol, as usual, is helping out with clips and all kinds of production stuff. And we're very excited that Carolyn McCusker, our new uh, producer, is here visiting from the year 2035, where she lives. There's kind of like a portal she goes through that's in the wall there. Does that like seal up eventually or do we have to have maintenance come down? Uh, all right. So we are now going to talk to one of our favorite guests when we're talking about words, Ben Zimmer, linguist, lexicographer, and the word on the street columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us again, Ben. Hi, Colin. Always great to be on. So we, you know, we use a lot of we've used a lot of clips on this episode today. One thing we haven't used, and we're not going to use with you because I'm not sure there really are very many, are clips of Yogi Berra actually saying Berraisms. Right? This is kind of, for the most part, a Garagiola-driven oral tradition rather than something we have a lot of tape for. Yeah, Yogi Berra, you know, who who passed away in 2015, was you know perhaps the most famous purveyor of this kind of off-kilter language. But it's true that um, a lot of that has just sort of been passed down through baseball folklore. You know, Yogi Berra was this great player and manager, but, uh, you know, when the obituaries came out in 2015, they all had in that first paragraph some of those famous things that he at least supposedly said. You know, uh, uh, it's deja vu all over again. Um, 90% of the game is half-mental, uh, if you come to a fork in the road, take it, and on and on and on. I mean, these are these are Berra-isms that we recognize, even though um, he wasn't necessarily caught in a hot mic moment saying these things. Um, but for many of them, we have evidence, yeah, he really did say it or probably said it. With other ones, um, a lot of them just got kind of attributed to him because it's the type of thing that Yogi Berra would say. Right. What's your position on, it's too crowded, nobody goes there anymore? Right. <laughs> well, that. That's a good one. Um, yeah, I, actually, uh, Yogi Berra in in a book recalled uh, saying that in 1959 um, about a restaurant in his old neighborhood in St. Louis, and he said it to Joe Garagiola and Stan Musial, and you know they thought it was hilarious. And yeah, Joe Gar- Garagiola was one of those who who just would repeat these Yogi Berra isms, and that kind of built up his aura or his you know his his notori- notoriety, I suppose, uh, for saying things that. Um, are just a bit off. Uh, and it's the type of thing where you hear it and you think, wait, that doesn't make any sense. But then you think about it some more. It's like, oh, well, maybe it makes a deeper kind of sense. Well, yeah, Ben, I mean, it ain't over till it's over. It has a kind of Zen completeness to it that is, it's inarguable. Absolutely. I mean, that that may be his most famous saying. And, and uh, you know, supposedly he said that in the summer of 1973. That's when the New York Mets uh, seemed like they were out of the pennant race, but they made this uh, this great great comeback um, in '73. Um, and so, yeah, if you think about it, it ain't over till it's over. 
that seems to be uh, self-contradictory, or I'm sorry, actually um, self, self-evident self rather than self-contradictory. Of course, it ain't over till it's over. You're stating a tautology. It's just s- saying the same thing twice. So why would you, why would you say it that way? But then, you know, uh, if you, if you take that statement and think about it, it's like, well, you know, what, what do we mean when we say that a game or a season is over? And, you know, how do we, how do we calculate the sense that it's over? And, you know, wh- what conclusions do we make? And so you can get all philosophical about something that just seems on its face, like just a, a silly misstatement or, you know, off kilter use of language. I think, as I understand this, and you're by far the expert, my, my understanding is that there are a lot of people for whom the way that Yogi has been portrayed amounts to kind of a caricature and, and almost suggests a guy who, like, this is before batting helmets were really good or something, you know, <laughs> that maybe. But my understanding is he was, in fact, not at all stupid, uh, quite the opposite, and, and not, the, not the sort of clownish caricature that comes down to us. I think that's true. Um, and, you know, perhaps the same can be said of Yogi Berra's mentor, Casey Stengel. Um, and uh, Casey Stengel, before Yogi Berra, was famous for saying things like, um, you know, uh, a lot of people my age are dead at the present time. <laughs> and Casey Stengel even put one of those uh, kind of funny statements on his gravestone where it says, there comes a time in every man's life and I've had plenty of them. <laughs> So that's almost so, that's that's almost Groucho esque. It is, it is. Yeah, you know, and I mean, a lot of these have that you know that the the element of of great humor where it subverts your expectations, right? You 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 get halfway through this and then it it veers off in a way that you didn't expect or loops back on itself. Um, and so Casey Stengel was famous for for doing this, and you know he was also no dummy, but he would you know sometimes say things that didn't make much sense. Um, and uh, it's interesting that Casey Stengel was sort of Yogi Berra's mentor. Um, and so maybe some of that rubbed off on Yogi. Um, and, you know, he, I guess, Casey Stengel served as a kind of a model. And once people started attributing these things to to, to Yogi, I think maybe he leaned into it a bit and they realized that, uh, you know, that was a, a popular perception. Um, and uh, so, yeah, even if he even if he wasn't as dumb as, uh, you know, as uh, people might make him out to be, he, uh, you know, he played with that public persona, I think. It is interesting. I mean, this is not an example of a speech unorthodoxy, but it's amazing how much of the sports stuff crosses over into our, our other speech. And as, as somebody who's covered a lot of political campaigns, there's often a time during the political campaign where I, I quote Stengel when he was managing the Mets and he said, can't nobody here play this game. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, it's just, the, the title of a book about the Mets, uh, Mets, uh, de- uh, you know, first season, I yeah. think, right? It's the perfect so, yeah. summation. So, um, <laughs> so this gets a little scarier when the president of the United States does it. And you know, everybody can have a slip or a disfluency. I mean, W... Bush 43 was kind of famous for them. You know, the important question is, is our children learning? Uh, that kind of thing. I mean, what's your overall take on uh, on that? Or, or maybe why W got to be famous for doing that? Yeah, George W. Bush got to be so famous that there were volumes of Bushisms that were published, um, poking fun at the various things that he said. And it's true that, uh, you know, he did have a, a tendency to kind of uh, get halfway through his sentence and forget where he was or, or uh, you know, just kind of try to improvise something that didn't 
come off quite right. I'm sort of remembering his famous one where he starts, fool me once, shame on you, <laughs> fool me, you can't get fooled again. Yeah. He just, you know. <laughs> um, so there, there are things like that where there might be an established kind of idiom or saying, and he just, you know, doesn't get it right. There are other ones that I think uh, that uh, that Bush said that were a bit more Yogi Berra-esque, um, like uh, he said, I think we agree the past is over. That feels, you know, Berra-esque. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, uh, sometimes these things happen on the word level. So perhaps the most famous word that uh, that that uh, Bush uh, came up with, George W. Bush came up with, was misunderestimate. Yes, he said they they misunderestimated misunderestimated me, and that was you know, um, I guess after <laughs> the the two thousand election. I'm pretty so, I'm, I'm pretty sure he never yeah. said strategery. And sometimes like the SNL yeah. stuff. You know, yeah. we start to ascribe it to its like I, I know for a fact that's that, that Sarah Palin never said that she could see Russia from her house, but I think right. people think she said it. You know? <laughs> yeah, but of course Sarah Palin was famous for uh, another kind of accidental blend, like misunderestimate. Um, Sarah Palin back in 2010 used the word refudiate, which uh, mashed together refute and repudiate. And at the time, you know, people people made a big deal out of that, uh, and pe- you know, those uh, depended on what side of the political spectrum you were on. Of course, would uh, determine how you reacted to that. So, uh, you know, people made fun of her, but people who were sort of more uh, sympathetic to Sarah Palin at the time, I guess, would say, "Oh, well, you know, that's actually a very useful word. We need a word that kind of combines refute and repudiate." Um, so, you know, I mean, it's it, like we were talking about with um, with egg corns, for instance, mm. wh- when you when you come up with something like this, sometimes it makes sense in a new way. Um, and there can be a value to that, even if, again, on the surface, it's simply an error or a misspeak. Yeah. I, I w- wouldn't refudiate kind of qualify. I'm still not sure I have a complete mastery of the idea of an egg corn and how it's different from a malapropism. But refudiate almost feels like it. it, it has the kind of utility that might allow it to get into the Eggcorn database, which you are actually there is such a thing, and you are involved in it. I should say both of them. Yeah, I, you know, if we're being technical, I would not call that uh, an eggcorn exactly. Although you know, it it has it has a a bit of a, an eggcorn quality to it, I guess, because you're taking uh, repudiate and it, you're bringing in at least part of a new word by using the beginning of refute. Typically, with an eggcorn, though. You're replacing one word with another one. Um, it could be a word that's pronounced the same or similar to it. So, you know, like the examples uh, before that Emily was talking about where it's, you know, butt naked instead of buck naked, or we it could pronou- be pronounced the same but spelled differently, like free rain becoming R-E-I-G-N, where typically with an eggcorn, you're you're yeah you're taking taking a word and replacing it with something that makes more sense to you that might be more transparent semantically um and so with something like uh refudiate it feels more just like an accidental blend just sort of like misunderestimate where you're taking parts of pre-existing words and smashing them together perhaps in an orthodox way so to to the point of eggcorns, um, there was some guy, some weird guy who happened to share your name, Carl Zimmer, who uh, <laughs> who uh, was confused about. It. And this is, I think, an area of genuine confusion that lots of people have about the expression "toe the line." I will now hand, hand the line for you to either toe or put your foot on. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah. So that that's that's another case, much like um, much like free reign. 
um, spelled R-E-I-N or R-E-I-G-N, if you have something that's a, a homophone like that and you're trying to figure out how to um, spell it, um, then you you might get a little confused. So, um, in fact, um, toe, T-O-E, is the original spelling of that. Um, the idea of, uh, you know, a, a ship and you you would not put your toe past the line on a on a plank this is a sort of like old nautical knowledge that nobody should be expected to know anymore in the same way that like with free reign it has to do with horse riding and we don't ride horses anymore so if you're getting confused and think oh is this this other word that sounds the same and i can make it make sense in a new way then yeah that's what happens because idioms in the language sometimes get frozen um i sometimes call idioms the barnacles on the ship of language they just kind of hang on um, and then when we try to like use them again, um, where they come from might be completely opaque to us. And so that's what we do. We reinvent language. We take these pieces, these building blocks of language, and and try to make it make sense in a new way. Tomorrow on our show, actually, we have Emily St. John Mandel, the author of, among other things, Station Eleven, where it turns out we're going to be riding horses again pretty soon. It's, you know, it's a it's good news that we still have these expressions. But actually, I, I just thought of this, and I wish I had a great example. But one of the things that happens in Station Eleven, for people who don't know, ninety nine percent of the human race is wiped out by a pandemic, and this kind of pre industrial society sets in. But one of the things that happens is what you're talking about, which is a lot of language is pinned to a state of technology, to a chronological iteration of technology. So if you take the technology away, I mean, there's probably about 20 idioms that have to do with with smartphones right now. Uh, and we're not even aware that we're using them as idioms derived from smartphones. But if you took that technology away, it wouldn't make any sense, just like toe the line. Yeah, but, you know, we sometimes hold on to things that are actually outmoded in the language that refer to older technology, you know, like we still talk about uh, taping things or whatever, even though we're not using tape uh, or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, you can think of that kind of anachronistic use of language, which sometimes sticks around. But, yeah, over time, those things just become uh, harder harder to understand because they all the reference, all the sort of cultural reference have, have been uh, fall, have fallen by the wayside, and uh, but we still have the language that survives, and so that's what we do. We we can take those old things and revive them in new ways and get creative with them. All right, we have to stop there very reluctantly. But Ben Zimmer is a linguist, lexicographer, and the Word on the Street columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Thank. I should end with an eggcorn, but I I don't have one, Ben. But thank you very much for being here. <laughs> Thanks. Always a pleasure. And thanks very much for listening today. Uh, special thanks to Tilly Lyson, the Pinier producer, who did a lot of work and there are a lot of elements that had to come together. Hope you had fun with us and we'll be back tomorrow with, in fact, Emily St. John Mandel.